Welcome to the Learning Can't Wait podcast, a Full Mind production. At Full Mind, our vision is to ensure every child has access to an exceptional education. Each episode, we will be joined by pathfinders within and around the education space who are bringing about transformational change on behalf of deserving students. I am your host, Haley Spierbauer. Welcome back, everybody. I am so excited to learn during today's episode, and I hope you will be too, from the founder and CEO of The Calculus Project, Dr. Adrian Mims. Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you. I am super eager to talk to you because I get to talk to brilliant people on this podcast every episode and every time I learn a lot, but this topic feels particularly ripe for learning. And so not too much pressure on you, but let's, let's just dive in. Um, starting us off with, how did you come to be the personal and professional version of yourself? You know, it's interesting because um, I'm an educator, I'm a mathematician, but I always tell people I feel as though education chose me because I wasn't planning on doing the work that I'm doing now. I initially aspired to become an electrical engineer. I uh, grew up in South Carolina, attended James F. Burns High School, left there, went to the University of South Carolina with the goal of becoming an electrical engineer, Uh, changed my major junior year to mathematics, and then uh, graduated with my degree in mathematics and didn't really quite know what to do with it moved to Boston and uh, became a math tutor uh, through a program called METCO, which is one of the oldest voluntary busing programs in the country, might be the oldest that started back in the late 1960s. And so I provided math uh, support for students in the program at Brookline High School and also helped them out with physics. Uh, And uh, in addition to that, I did other jobs, you know, I worked in banking and I worked in marketing and I was just really trying to figure things out. And uh, after a few years of doing that, I just decided to dive in, you know, both feet first into uh, math education and um, held various positions at Brookline High School. I love the saying, teaching found me. It sounds like, especially given the subject matter that you focused on, everything was a through line to your deep, profound understanding of mathematics. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I mean, I always say that um, I've I've always loved math, even though math was hard for me at times. You know, I struggled. my sixth grade math teacher was Mr. Dogan. I still remember all the, the names of these people. He uh, noticed that I was really good at math, but I think what really made me focus on being a good student as well was the fact that I, I grew up with severe asthma and uh, I was hospitalized a lot. I couldn't play any sports. So I wanted to be good at something. Uh, grew up in a very competitive environment. So uh, in my math class, Mr. Dogan was a very uh, traditional teacher in the sense that he just gave us a bunch of worksheets. <laughs> and so I'm looking at 
everybody's worksheets and I'm trying to finish them, my worksheets before they finished. And as soon as I finished one set of worksheets, he's given me another. And I, I would walk around the classroom to see how far ahead I was. And so that was my form of, of competition. And again, I had uh, some ups and downs. My, my seventh grade math teacher, you know, I struggled a lot learning from her. She was a wonderful person, but it was hard for me to adapt to her teaching style. And then had a great eighth grade teacher where I, her style suited the way that I learned. And then ninth grade, I had algebra. I struggled there. So it was just up and down, but I never really lost the passion and love of, of math. So what you're speaking about here, the delivery method, the teaching style, is often what stymies folks and makes them believe they're not a math person. I know the CEO of Zern, Shalina Sharma, always talks about how there's no such thing as not being a math person. Do you like talk to me about that notion and how that really plays into what you've built with the calculus project? You know, it's funny you you say that. Um, if you look up the definition of mathematician, it doesn't say someone with a math degree. Um, and so what we tell students is that you are a mathematician. You use numbers all the time. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a degree, but, uh, you know, if you are, you know, for example, uh, well, I'm trying to think of one that people usually don't think. Think about a professional athlete. Professional athletes, they can be mathematicians. They're constantly looking at their stats. And then when it comes time to negotiate their contracts, they're basing their stats on how to leverage and get more money because of how their stats compare to other players who've signed previous contracts. So that's math. And I think, so unfortunately, one of the things that has happened is that uh, because, you know, curricula in general is really built around white middle class, that too many students, in particular students of color, um, don't necessarily see opportunities or see people who look like them in various fields and, uh, and as scholars. And I'll give you an example because one of the things we do in the calculus project, we have what we call the pride curriculum where students learn about the contributions of STEM professionals of color so that students can develop a stronger math and science identity. So I always ask these questions when I visit schools, why is it that you're not talking about HeLa cells and Henrietta Lacks in your biology classes? Uh, and if anyone doesn't know who Henrietta Lacks is or HeLa cells, Google it, look it up. But also uh, you, have, you have Catherine G. Johnson. How is it that you don't talk about Catherine G. Johnson in the physics classes or talk about Dr. Kizmikia Corbett uh, and relate the work that she did to address the spread of COVID. And when you look at the spread of COVID, it was exponential growth. So there are various ways that we can implement and be very inclusive in math curriculum and just in curricula in general. And so I believe that that's very important uh, to help students, you know, envision themselves as not only learners, but also as mathematicians or, or STEM professionals. 
It's such an important call out because it's a it's a theme, right? So as you mentioned, the curriculums that are primarily implemented were created for one subsection of the population, white middle class individuals. And also uh, the curriculum and the programs that were built to train our teachers. And so there's this up-leveling of professionals that's required to ensure culturally responsive practices, both in teaching content and in supporting learners' social emotional needs in a, in a curricular environment. You know, before this call, you, you named that math instruction is really focused on, or improving math instruction is really focused on curriculum right now but you have feelings about that. What are your feelings about the movement to lift math instruction via curriculum? And if you're not feeling super positive, spoiler alert, what is the route that you think we should, as the United States, be focused on for our students? Yeah, I mean, when I think about um, math curriculum, if it was as easy as just saying, hey, we really need to try this new math curriculum, I mean, think about it, you know, here we are 2023. Uh, we're still trying to figure out ways to improve learning outcomes. And if it was as easy as developing robust curriculum, I mean, given the genius that we have in this country, we would have solved this problem a long time ago. Uh, we, the, the problem in terms of how to improve education, it is extremely complicated and, and, and multifaceted. Um, and so I can probably talk about just this issue, the rest of the podcast. So I try to be as succinct as possible. Um, give you one example, teacher preparation. Um, there are multiple pathways to becoming a teacher. Uh, and so when you think about it, if you get on an airline, whether it's Delta, United, JetBlue, whatever, um, you know, the person flying that plane had to go through the same number of flying hours and meet all of the standards and the criteria to become a pilot, no matter where you you work, whatever, whatever airline. Um, if you're a doctor, all doctors have to go through the same uh, pathway, uh, same number of hours, same level of training. Teachers. It's very different. There are various pathways uh, of becoming a teacher. And all graduate schools of education are very different and don't always focus on the same things. And just to give you an example, you can go to a graduate school of education and they will break it down and they'll say, okay, well, this is urban education. And then here's regular education. Okay, well, Regular education can't benefit from what they're learning in urban education and vice versa. So why is it so distinct? And so what happens with the teacher who goes and takes all of the regular education courses, goes into a school district that eventually becomes extremely diverse, representing the demographics that one would find in an urban school? So will this teacher be prepared to deal with some of the, the, the cultural changes of the school and how to meet students where they are, you know, with regards to their cultural backgrounds? So I, I think we need to make a concerted effort to make sure that teachers have all of the tools and they're properly trained, but more importantly, that they're paid well, that they're paid as professionals. And what's happening around the country, depending on where you are, 
they are actually lowering the teaching standards to attract teachers to be able to bring teachers into various classrooms. And that's not the way to go. Um, it's, it's, it's a huge problem. But the other problem is, is that you have a lot of teachers leaving the profession. And when you look at some of the high needs areas like math and, and, and science, um, one of the reasons they're leaving, they can make two to three times as much money in the private sector than they can make teaching. And so what happens is when you go into some of these schools, whether it's in a, a, a rural district that might be poor or certain urban districts, you find a lot of permanent subs in the classroom. Well, these subs don't have the same level of training. However, the students who are in the classrooms are required to perform just as well as their counterparts throughout the state, even though they don't have the same level of resources. So that's just one thing. I don't want to take up the, the rest of the time, but no, but it's, it's, it's so it's many valuable issues. insight. It's valuable insight. I, you know, it's there is a fundamental issue with, in my opinion, the regionalization, the localization of how teachers learn and then how teachers teach. I find it so wild that you can have such variance from state to state, from county to county, and even within a district about the way that we teach children. So let's zoom out a little bit then and talk about the calculus project. Obviously, you've built it for a reason. Why don't you tell folks why you founded the calculus project and why calculus? I know that's not your only focus, but why calculus? What What's the importance of calculus? So the, the calculus project was born out of my dissertation uh, when I decided to go back to graduate school for a third time at Boston College. Um, and my, my dissertation topic was improving African-American achievement in geometry honors. And, and the reason why I wanted to focus on closing the achievement gap. And first, you know, I, I talked to my dissertation chair. I said, I want to write my dissertation on closing the achievement gap in mathematics. And he told me, <clears throat> um, Dr. Jerry Sterrett, um, who passed away a few years ago, he told me, he said, look, that's too broad. You got to narrow it. And so I narrowed it down to geometry honors. And the reason why I did that is because when I was a math teacher and also dean of students at Brookline High School, I noticed that we would have on average 20 to 25 students who identified as Black or African-American coming in, taking geometry honors their freshman year. That was the first course in a sequence of four courses that led to high school calculus or AP calculus. However, by the time that graduating class matriculated over the four years, none of those students existed in calculus or AP calculus. So I thought that was fascinating. Like that rate of attrition is pretty scary. Like what is going on? And so that was really the, 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 the core of my dissertation, looking specifically at geometry honors, because by the second quarter, we would lose 60 to 70 percent of students who identified as Black or African-American. They would literally drop down to geometry standard. 
And some of it because they lacked preparation, because it was a different way of thinking mathematically. They had never written three, uh, two column proofs before, and they didn't know the importance of learning the theorems in the postulates. So I learned that from working individually with them. The other reason was that some students could actually excel and do well in geometry honors. However, they would deliberately drop down to a lower level course to satisfy that need to be with their peers. So it was more important for them to have that sense of belonging than to learn how to write two column proofs. And actually there was a researcher named uh, Dr. Signithia Fordham who coined the phrase racelessness uh, to describe this phenomenon where you know students of color would deliberately underachieve to drop down to a lower level course to satisfy that sense of belonging. So for me, it was, okay, we're gonna pre-teach the students the math during the summer, help them learn the theorems and the postulates that they need to get through the first quarter because we know if they get through the first quarter, chances are they'll successfully complete the course. And two, we're gonna teach students how to work in teams and we're gonna create student cohorts and populate these honor level courses and specific, specifically geometry honors with calculus project students to satisfy that sense of belonging. And so literally we went from 60 to 70% to 0% in one year, not one student withdrew. So that's when we knew we were on to something. And so from freshman year, uh, we built the program down to include rising eighth graders and we continued to build it up uh, all the way to uh, 12th grade. And the second part of your question about why calculus, uh, regardless of what a lot of people say or information they put out there, uh, college admissions folk, they are looking at transcripts heavily. And there's a lot of research around the benefits of taking calculus, but there's also the reality that college admissions, when they see AP calculus on a student's transcript to them, that translates into the student can handle rigorous coursework and that they can graduate within four to six years. And admissions people, they want everyone that they admit to graduate within four to six years. And so they've collected data over the years to show that a student's math attainment in high school clearly provides important information as to whether they'll graduate within four to six years. So of course, admissions folk are looking at other criteria for accepting students, but that is one major criterion that unfortunately is lacking in a lot of low-income students with their transcript and students of color. You know, it's funny, that's not the answer I expected you to give, but um, I, it was it's powerful and it tells an important story about how you focus your work and your time and for whom um, you've done that. The answer I expected you to give was about how calculus matters in real life. You know, there's so many people that graduate high school and say, I love calculus, why did I take that? Um, but there is, there is application. I did some, the reason why I was excited to talk to you, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you is I did some research prior to this call and calculus is really implicated in so many aspects of our world that I don't think folks realize. It's the underpinning to so much of how the world works and how even thinking about the world like it underlies the way we think about the world and we study information and we make predictions and change habits. So 
that for me felt like a real stick it to them, you know? <laughs> well, you know what? The the reason why, uh, I mean, calculus is, is, is beautiful and it does have a lot of applications, but you know, the reality of it all is, is that I look at access more than anything. And I look at the fact that we have an educational system that puts learning second, but puts sorting first. And students are put into this grinder where they're sorted and they're tracked. And when you think about the achievement gap in mathematics, you think about the students who are above the gap, who are thriving and doing well, and the students who are below the gap. And so I look at our work as looking at what the students above the, the gap are getting and making sure the students below the gap get the same thing. And so unfortunately, your zip code does determine the access that you have to quality teaching and, and, and resources that are vital to your learning. And, uh, you know, approximately 50% of the high schools in the country even offer calculus. So now you're talking about having access, which we have a lot of students who are in communities where they don't even have these on an advanced level courses, but they can do the work if they were given the same resources. So we're leaving a lot of talent on the sidelines. So um, I'll tell you one quick story uh, about my niece. Uh, my niece attended uh, Northeastern. Uh, she graduated this several years ago. I think she graduated maybe about almost 10 years ago uh, from the Bouvet College of Health and Science. Uh, she's a speech and language pathologist. So I was surprised when she reached out to me and she said, I'm struggling in calculus. And I said, wait a minute, you're not a like engineer or whatever. She said, no, I'm taking a calculus course. So I found that interesting. Why is a speech and language pathologist taking calculus? And so, you know, I, I know a few people. I reached out to some people at uh, Northeastern and I had a conversation with this one individual and, you know, he just broke it down. He said, look, you know, the Bouvet College of Health and Science is very popular. We have a lot of applicants. So really calculus was used to sort the, the students to get the cream of the crop and narrow down because, and these aren't actual numbers, but just to give you an idea how this works, let's just say if they only have a hundred seats where they can accept students, they might have a thousand applicants. So how are they gonna sort through all of these applicants? Because the demand is higher than the supply. Well, you raise the criteria and when you raise the criteria that helps you to sort. And so when you end up sorting students, given all of the information I told you about access to calculus or whatever, you tend to end up with not a whole lot of diversity in terms of students being accepted. So anyway, to her advantage, she took calculus in high school, so it wasn't as difficult for her to get through it. But when she graduated with her master's in speech and language pathology, she never used calculus again. I mean, she didn't help anyone to stop stuttering by calculating the area under the curve. So th those are some of the things that bother me about education that we're still using an old um, plan of sorting students. And we have students who can particularly do these jobs uh, that are very important, uh, but we, we are we are sorting them out based off of one or two courses that 
perhaps they probably didn't even have access to. Yeah, that's pretty alarming. And, and I'm sure it's not an isolated incident. You know, even I think a lot about the entrance exams that are used for community colleges and how what it basically does, the math, they're math heavy intended to, uh, you know, either sort kids into remedial coursework for col in colleges and um, community yeah. colleges, which then ensures that the students have to pay more money to take the remedial courses because they didn't pass them. Like it, it reminds me of that mindset, which specifically disadvantages, you know, individuals who have come from zip codes where their school may not have been as well resourced to ensure the instruction. Like it, all the things you're talking about here reminds me of that, that the big question around community colleges, remedial courses, and the assessments that they used to have students take it. It's built on built on systemic oppression. Like that is the definition of it. Well, you know what? Here, here's the thing. Uh, to your point, um, students, when we when we do run our orientation sessions to recruit students, we invite students and their parents to come. And one of the things that parents listen to very carefully is we tell them, look. The calculus project is a lot is more than just helping your child, you know, succeed in honors and advanced level math. Putting this investment in now can actually save you money. And so that's one of the things that we speak to when a student goes to a college and they test into a remedial course. One, those credits don't count towards their graduation. A lot of parents don't know that. And two, they have to pay for it. Yep. So, you know, money saved is money earned. And. So with the calculus project, this isn't something that I'm just putting out there just to, you know, do something to keep myself busy or whatever. Both of my children participated. Well, my son, he just graduated from Bridgewater State and my daughter, she's a senior at Brookline High School taking AP calculus. But my son hated math and I forced him to do the calculus project from eighth grade and we butted heads a lot. But his story is that he went to Bridgewater State he got accepted. The first thing they did, they did, they gave him a test called the AccuPlacer. If he failed that test, he would have had to have enrolled into a remedial math course, but he passed it. Now, the content that's on the AccuPlacer is really college algebra. So that's why I was pushing my son to take AP Calculus. Well, he took high school calculus because taking high school calculus made sure he was overprepared for their AccuPlacer test. So um, sharing that information with families so that they can make the right decisions is, is very important. I couldn't remember the name AccuPlacer, so thank you. That was exactly the exam I was trying to, to, try to think of. You know, you mentioned families and I, we have a little bit of time still left together. So I wanna just pick up this one thread that you and I had previously discussed, which is, you know, lots of parents, myself included, will tell you, which by the way, I find it hysterical that I'm included here because I taught kindergarten, first grade, second grade, fifth grade, eighth grade. I worked in elementary schools and middle schools and my second grader comes home with math sometimes. And I just don't understand. I want him to answer a question. So Adrian, what do you say to that? How do you help families who are supporting their learners at home when they themselves don't understand the math? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a two-way street. One of the I do a couple of things. One thing I do is when I work with schools, I encourage schools 
to be more inclusive and enlist parents as allies. And one way to do that is to have parents come in for back to school night, but also um, just have parents do a drop in um, and have coffee, or donuts in the morning and, and, and talk about what's going on in class. Now, I know that might be pie in the sky. There might be issues with the collective bargaining agreement and contracts with teachers or whatever. But I think it's important to really find time to carve in those relationships, because when you have those lines of communication open, uh, what it does, it allows parents to reach out to teachers and say, hey, I see that you're covering long division and I didn't learn it this way. Can you give me or share some resources or give me some tips as to how I can support my child? Well, teachers reaching out and empowering and helping parents to do some work on their end in the home actually pays huge dividends for the teacher when the students come back into the classroom uh, because they're getting that additional support, those that, that additional help. Um, for older uh, students, one of the things that I tell parents is that, and I'll give you an example, let's just say Johnny comes home, he has 10 homework problems. He does five of the homework problems and the other five are blank. Well, the parent might not be able to help with the problems Johnny left blank. However, the parent can say, you know what, Johnny, you can't turn in a homework with only 50% of the problems done. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down at least one or two questions for each problem that you left blank. So that when you turn it into the teacher, the teacher will know that you've tried and that they'll be able to figure out the best way to help you. And so I think we have to change our mindsets as educators and understand this too, that Yes, we can know a lot by what students know by the way they answer a question, but we can learn just as much about what they know with the questions they ask. And so um, enlisting parents and helping them with developing these strategies um, is, is, is definitely on the back end uh, very helpful and beneficial to teachers. I love that. I love that asking the question. What you don't know is almost more important than what you do know, because it tells you all about your line of thinking and where your confusion is. So I guess that's a perfect segue to my final question, which is what advice would you give a teacher who's starting their career teaching math today? Well, wow, I got a lot of tips for that. Um, I, I'll share with what I did that I found very helpful. <clears throat> I made an opportunity, I created opportunities for myself to observe other teachers teach who are veteran math teachers. And I took notes. I learned a lot. I learned about what I should definitely do in the classroom, like establishing really great relationships with students, simple things such as trying to learn everyone's name the first day. Um, that's big with kids. When they see you in the hall and they just started attending your class and you say hello, they are so surprised that out of all of the students, you remembered them. So always try to get to know your students' names uh, the first day. But when you're observing these teachers, write down what they do well and the things that they don't do well. And being a good teacher is all about being authentic and uh, take the things that they do well and build it around who you are as a person. Um, 
there were some things that teachers did that I definitely didn't like that I made sure I didn't incorporate in my classroom, such as locking the door in case a student comes late or writing a student's name on the board, kind of shaming a student into doing the right thing. Uh, you know, so that there were some teachers doing that. So I think looking at veteran teachers, that's very important. Also, if there's a teacher in the math department, seek that teacher out to see if they'd be willing to be a mentor for you. Um, that's always good. Uh, and the last thing I would say is, is that, you know, teaching is hard. So whenever you get a letter from a student or a parent saying, my child loved your class or a student saying, wow, you really made math fun. It's never been fun for me. Make sure you keep all of those letters so that when you have those tough days, you just open the drawer and start reading those letters to know that what, you, what you're doing matters and it has purpose. Quite a bit of really good advice there. I mean, for so many audience during the entirety of our of our podcast recording here, Dr. Mims, thank you so much for coming on today. I want to let people know that are listening, if they want to know more about the Calculus Project, where can they learn more? Yeah, you can visit our website, uh, thecalculusproject.org. I really encourage you to follow me on LinkedIn um, because I post a lot of the uh, partnerships that we're establishing and some of the, the things that we're working on. That's a great way. You can follow uh, us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and uh, Facebook. I love it. Well, a pleasure to have you on here today, Dr. Mims. I have learned so much about what you have done and what you are building and I really hope that our listeners share as much joy as I do as, as having learned from you today. Thank you. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for everybody who joined us today. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Learning Can't Wait podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and share this episode. Be the first to know when we have a new episode by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have a suggestion for an episode, email us at podcast at fullmindlearning.com.